1: Hello, I'm Nathan Smith, a host for the New Books Network. I have the pleasure today to speak with Bonnie Gordon, professor of music at the University of Virginia, about her second book, Voice Machines, The Castrato, The Cat Piano, and Other Strange Sounds, which was published by the University of Chicago Press earlier earlier this year. To steal some good words from the inside flap, Italian courts and churches began employing castrato singers in the late 16th century. By the 18th century, the singers occupied a celebrity status on the operatic stage. Constructed through surgical alteration and further modified by rigorous training, castrati inhabited human bodies that had been mechanized to produce sounds in ways that unmechanized bodies could not. The voices of these technologically enhanced singers with their unique timbre, range and strength contributed to a dramatic expansion of musical vocabulary and prompted new ways of imagining sound, the body and personhood. Connecting sometimes bizarre snippets of history, this multidisciplinary book moves backward and forward in time, deliberately troubling the meaning of concepts like technology and human. Voice Machines attends to the ways that the early modern encounters and inventions, including settler colonialism, emergent racialized worldviews, the printing press, gunpowder, and the telescope participated in making Castrati. In Bonnie Gordon's revealing study, Castrati serve as a critical provocation to ask questions about the voice, the limits of the body, and the stories historians tell. Uh, And with that, Bonnie Gordon, welcome. Thank you. Now, I I do want to say for all of our listeners, Bonnie is being incredibly patient and a trooper, uh, currently recovering from COVID. So uh, I just want to thank you and add a little extra thanks to uh, to come to speak with us today.
0: It's a pleasure.
1: Um, So to get started, can you tell us about how, uh, well, I guess first a little bit about yourself and then how you got into this project?
0: Um, I teach at the University of Virginia. I'm a music historian, I play the viola, and I run a lot of community engagement programs. Um, and currently I'm co-directing something called the Sound Justice Lab with a co- colleague in music and a colleague in the law school around what whose voices are left out of legal systems. Um, and how I wrote came to this book is it's such a hard question to answer. Um, In part, it was because I wrote a book about Monteverdi and gender in which I managed to talk almost not at all about castrati or the church. Um, And those weren't lacks that reviewers particularly noticed, but they were lacks that I noticed. Um, So that was one way. And when I started writing the book, I was really interested in festivals in Rome. These just like wild street parades that turned out to be kind of full of castrati. And I was chasing down these little almost pamphlets with wild pictures of fireworks and organs and animals and castrated men singing. Um, And I went to Rome to do research and, um, I had two and a half year old twins and my mom was the nanny and I would go to the library for, you know, five hours a day and not get up even to do anything. And then I would come out of mostly the Vatican and walk all over Rome with my babies. And I just realized there was this whole other world out there. So I think in a lot of ways, the experience of Rome, of being in Rome with little kids and looking at things that were kind of at the level of a regular grown-up person's knees made me just realize that there was this whole ecology of a city that was out there that I wanted to think about and I thought started thinking so much about Rome even in the contemporary time which then was around 2008 as being kind of a global place. So it wasn't really just about Rome. It was about who was in and out of Rome. And it was about these like amazing layers of history. You know, there's a playground on top of uh, with your little kids in their sneakers on top of a Baroque building on top of ancient ruins. So I think those are the two ways, the two ways I got to it. One was sort of scholarly and one was sort of personal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And those, and those, uh, those fuse in your prologue, when you introduce your, um two research two research assistants uh, (laughs) namely the the are they twins
0: they're twins yeah they're college they're starting their junior year of college now so they uh yeah that's what happens when you take 20 years to write a book is the babies
1: uh go to college that's so funny because the the picture that you have here the little stroller they're so small
0: i know they're so small and they're so not small anymore
1: oh yeah i see fall of 2005 wow yeah Um,
0: Oh, my God. 2005. Okay, of course.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. No. And that and that that angle, especially the uh, the the navigating Rome definitely comes out in your text Um, explicitly in, in one chapter, I believe, when you're talking about the festivals.
0: Yeah. The sixth chapter is about I think I called it when in Rome or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that was I had to pull out a map to try to like. You know, like, so yeah, I guess it kind of made me the the reader want to, you know, virtually try to like inhabit that. Like, yeah, this is a space I've never been to, but like it is indeed a space that people navigate and has connections and, and layers. So and oh, it
0: sure. is. Yeah. And also, I mean, I'm visually impaired, so I really can't see maps. So I just like I wandered all over the place and I also would go running in the hills and then I would get lost pushing this. I mean, the double stroller died like we killed it. It didn't come oh. home. Um <laughs> So I just, uh, you know, I just went all over the place and just really did. Also, you know, when you're walking around with little kids, you're just listening all the time. Um, And even just the technology. And when I went back for a second trip, my then youngest child was 17 or 18 months old. And he was one of these kids that was obsessed with machines, So his, one of his first words was machina, which is car. So we would just, you know, we were constantly looking for machines and like he loved big wheels and we would go, his favorite thing was to go watch them fix the cobblestones. So I spent all this time watching the Roman, you know, like fix the cobblestones all over the place, which also was such a, they, such a pre-modern way to run roads.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: (laughs) pounding and the noise of pounding. So a lot of it really was, I mean, the book isn't all about Rome, but it's, I would say it's centered in some ways for me on walking around and the idea of cities as these living spaces.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, cool. Um, I guess before we uh, delve into the text proper, Um, Could uh, you first give the listeners a quick overview of Castrati um, and perhaps briefly situate your contribution and their very long history of commentary?
0: So most, in the most basic sense, Castrati are singers whose genitals are altered in some way, usually as children, so that their voices, male voices don't change. So they have this, they would have we're told this kind of tremendous range. You know, they could sing really, really high and still low, and they had enormous chests, so it just it sounded really big. Like sometimes, you know, if you have like a, a subwoofer right up in your face, that's the feeling that it makes me think of. Um, so that's the bit. And they, they, the Italian courts and churches really capitalized them in the sixty on them in the sixteenth century. But it's something that had gone all the way back until to the ancient world, just this idea of altering humans and altering voices. Um, And they reached their height, I would say in the 18th century when they were sort of rock stars. So the movie Farinelli is a good, it actually does a very good job of there's one scene in that movie where the castrato is like flying in clouds out of the sky. And this woman faints, has an orgasm listening to him sing, and of course it's, you know, it's film, so it's exaggerated, but it gives you a sense of the kind of, rock star uh place that some of them had um so yeah does that answer the question about sort of basically what the castrato is
1: yeah yeah no and and it's it's funny to hear you bring up uh that movie i haven't seen the text but just you, you were saying yeah in the film it seems so exaggerated but it actually seems kind of in keeping with with some of the uh the pyrotechnics and the the stage design that you go into in a couple of these chapters That's interesting
0: And also, yeah, and musically, you can think, you know, if you know early music, you can think about the sound of Monteverdi is a good sound to think of. Um, Purcell, I mean, not that that had a lot of castrato, but it's that kind of sound. The earliest and the earlier parts, castrato parts, wouldn't necessarily have sounded all that different from music written for other kinds of singers. It was later that they got exceptional. And then you might think of in a modern voice you might you might think of like a voice like kate bush
1: okay uh we're back we had a quick um a quick disconnect thanks courtesy of xfinity thank you we're we're not i don't think we're sponsored by xfinity so thank you for your work xfinity but we're going to try jump back in we had just finished talking about um the early you know parts for the castrati and you were uh describing the um like the later kind of uh exceptional voice that they took on. And I think we just kicked off with a discussion of uh, Kate Bush. And
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to say one of the things I like to do is to think about kind of sounds like, you know, what would give us the impression of the castrato voice. And I think of a voice like Kate Bush with that exceptional four octave range and the ability to make all these different kind of sounds, or I've been listening to a lot of Sinead O'Connor since she passed and you know, the the way that her voice could do so much and just make such a variety of sounds, you could have this incredibly like an incredible growl and this really light versatility and a really big voice. Um, So I think what drew people to the castrato voice eventually was just all the things it could do that were different from regular humans.
1: Fantastic. Cool. Um, all right. Let's, uh, we want, you want to jump in a little bit Yeah. to the text? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Sure. So your text consists of, uh, 11 chapters. If we include the pro and epilogue, yeah. um, instead of systematically going through each one, um, I've structured our discussion loosely around the four interventions you outline in the prologue. Um, the assumption being that this will help pique some of the interests of our listeners. And then from there we can dip in and out of the chapters and, thread our way through the text in whatever seems natural. That sounds so great. So to start. Oh, yeah. Great. Uh, to start, could you uh, tell us a little bit about the presentism of current understandings of technology and then delve into how the early modern period pushes against these understandings?
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about the presentism of technology for years. And I think one of the things is when music scholars in particular started thinking about technology, we were all very enamored of things like microphones and recording, which did dramatically change the way we experience sound and music and really the world. You know, those examples in Weimar, Germany of people kind of running around and saying, you could hear the same Beethoven in the house next door. Um, But what struck me in thinking about the period that I spend my fantasy life in is that there are all these technologies that don't depend on electricity, right? You don't have to plug into a wall to be technological. And these technologies are things like the wheel is this amazing technology and technologies of the human. If you think about technologies as the way that humans kind of intersect with the world. And, you know, if we basically wait till electricity we lose so much in thinking about technology and in particular, in thinking about sound.
1: Um, Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, um, you know, the one thing that I I guess as someone who does kind of fall on this presentist side, insofar as I'm interested in like the 20th century primarily. um, Yeah. I I always liked um, the moments uh, when, and in, in effect, kind of noticing the same thing that you're saying is that when people talk about technology, there's often a brief moment where they go, you know, like staging and set design and all these things were all technologies that helped create presence before the presence of recorded voice. And you're taking that kind of thread that like it's often just like a little qualification for people to really talk about the 20th century. Uh, and you're stretching it all the way back, uh, at least at least in the early modern period.
0: Yeah. And the other thing, too, is I think, I mean, there's a lot of philosophical critiques of kind of authenticity and technology, which I'm not going to try to uh, rehearse. But, um, you know, I think there's also this sense that recording and that technology makes things kind of more real and more authentic. And I always think about, you know, Zornil Hurston doing fieldwork recordings and being really pissed off at the Lomax brothers for using their big machine, which she said couldn't capture human voices. Um, So I think there's also this way in which by thinking about particularly in sound pre-recorded technologies becomes a kind of critique of the fidelity of recording or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and it it definitely takes critiques that are centered in the 20th century, like from modern scholars and stretches them back and gives them some of that like long genealogy. Um, That's great. So what, what, what would technology, to kind of, you know, dip into this book, what, what are some of the technologies that scatter throughout the chapters and how does that talk a little bit differently about the way these things are mediated?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the technologies that I talk about is super basic, which is basically extended instruments, you know, how did composers and instrumentalists manipulate musical instruments. So, you know, Monteverdi, every time he was the kind of guy where if he didn't get the sound that he wanted, he just fixed it. You know, if you think of a tinkerer, he was a tinkerer, right? Like make the, you know, stick one keyboard onto another keyboard and make a different set of sounds. So that's one kind of technology is just the ways that composers, performers manipulated instruments. I also think about things like echoes, and in that I went really all the way back to thinking towards the ancients and the way echo effects were used and thinking towards some early audio experiments, but the way that there are these technologies that are kind of almost in nature. Um, And then, of course, I thought, I mean, it's a book about castration or castrato, and I talked quite a lot about the procedure of castration, which... I would say that most scholars have just kind of quoted 18th century treatises. And what I tried to do was to look really carefully at the history of surgery and go back to around the seventh century um, when these procedures were kind of being, the procedures that are most known to us were being used and kind of solidified. So thinking about technologies for modifying the human body Those are some of the kinds of technologies that I think about in the book. And of course, stagecraft, as you mentioned, is a big one. I also was really fascinated with fireworks, which goes back again to being in Rome. And Romans just love fireworks. You know, they never miss an opportunity to shoot stuff in the sky. Um, And that was another technology that I looked at these ways to create spectacular effects, really.
1: Yeah, no, and... To tie in the castrati as well, like that's something that you're kind of arguing for how, you know, the pyrotechnics of the voice are kind of like brought into that kind of spectacular uh, aesthetic.
0: Yeah, uh, and definitely. And also in terms of technology and the castrato themselves, and this really runs through the book is to think about the castrato as, you know, a singer whose voice is made by a surgical procedure, but also by this incredible training. And that's something that, you know, all of us who are musicians know, right? Like my, all these weird calluses, because I play the viola, and I'm sure my left arm is longer than my right arm now from doing that for 40 years, or, you know, athletes who change their bodies. So just thinking about technologies that alter the body some of which are particularly now surgical or involve medications or pharmaceuticals and some of which really just involve kind of manipulating your own body as a technology in and of itself you know anyone who's ever followed kind of a plan like a couch to 10k that's a technology
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah. sorry i i you you said couch and my i'm like I'm like having a i thought you said couch for 10 years and i'm like are we talking about like the the progressive indentation of my couch because no, i do worry
0: about like runner's
1: world <laughs> couch to 10k yeah no no no. I, I had some friends who did that um yeah absolutely absolutely well cool um so i guess to kind of like touch on this um and this is going to break with the order that you presented these um i'm going to jump to the fourth intervention which concerned the intricate process of telling stories. Yeah. So connected with your discussions of presentism, of contemporary scholarship, you among others have noted the 18th century as a pivotal period in how discussions of technology, nature, the human, and even Castrati, as you'll inform us, uh, were conceived. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about the work that telling stories about the Castrati did during that transitional period?
0: Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And it's funny, because I studiously avoided the 18th century for, you know, a decade writing this book, because it felt to me like, one of the things I was trying to do at the beginning was to get away from talking about Farinelli and the Castrati that everybody else talked about. Um, And part of it, too, is I when I taught Castrati, I would always tell, there's this story that was in James Harriet's book that, um, uh, I just got the name wrong and confused it with the animal guy. But anyway, Angus Harriet's book about the castrato. And it's the story of this castrato who sang such a virtuosic aria that his penis popped out on the stage in the middle of it. And suddenly, you know, he was intact, but he lost his livelihood. And I would tell that story to the students as the kind of fantastical myths around the castrato and then of course think like well obviously that didn't happen there's zero chance that anybody's anything was popping out on stage Um, but what became what was interesting to me was the way that the work the story did in the 18th century and then also the work that the story did later in later centuries that you know we have these stories that got written as truth in the 19th or 20th century and typically they are taken from 18th century accounts, often 18th century travel accounts. So the 18th century was kind of the center of when Italy was also becoming the kind of very edge of the civilized world, quote unquote, and Italy was becoming othered. Um, and the, the castrato telling stories about the castrato was a way to tell stories about a global south. It was a bit way to tell stories about civilization, about humans, about limits, um, and, I was also struck by the 18th century is a century that particularly in the United States, we kind of think we know it. It's, you know, the American revolution and the declaration of independence and the constitution. And these documents make some sense to us, but you know, what I found in reading around was a lot of documents that we would, for example, think of as a historical document were themselves kind of a pornographic pamphlet um, or, something that was written as a satire, you know, a scholar in 1980 quotes from something that was really a satire designed to take down an Italian that they didn't like. Um, So I thought a lot about this question of the political work of stories. um, And then, you know, I've been intrigued for quite a long time about history as these interlapping or intertwined stories, stories from say, in my case, the 16th century, and then the 18th century stories of the 16th century, and then the 20th and 21st century stories of the 18th century. So just the way these intersecting stories make it impossible to find truth. And one of the things, I think one of the last chapters I was, I'd been thinking about for such a long time was this question of the erotics of the castrato. And it was another thing that I avoided just to kind of try and avoid purient interest and I remember I was thinking at some point, well, how would we know what Castrato thought about who they were or were not sleeping with? I mean, we don't even know that about our closest friends all the time. So why are we going to know about this about dead people?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Point. Yeah. Uh, no. And, uh, uh, oh, sorry. Go
0: ahead. That's it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I was just I just wanted to pull out one of my favorite. I mean, this is just like your book is. It's very fun to read. You you have a lovely style that has a whole bunch of like slang and idioms and modern references that are very. And some of them are not just like you know, you know, glib. I'm you know using a song title to kind of talk about the 16th century, um, but like some of them are talking about like Supreme Court cases and their long histories. But I thought my, one of my favorite uh, thought experiments that you had was. Um, you were trying to talk about the difference between satire and realism, essentially. And you you have this lovely thought experiment about, um, imagine trying to explain to a scholar from the, you know, 2500, who's studying the Trump era, the difference between like the New York Times and the Onion. You know, like, I mean, you know, I thought that was a lovely, you know, like, I'm like, man, how the hell would you do that? Like that's because they're, they're relying on the same tropes and they're relying on the same things, but there's like extra textual, like it's so hard to capture satire in, in, in such a sense, like in such a, like just in prose per se. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, but, and one of the many times I didn't finish this book was, you know, as Trump was being elected and I really did have this feeling of we were entering Barberini Rome. Like we know how this goes, right? Like they people make stuff up, you cannot tell the difference. And, you know, There were these, like in the sort of worst of kind of Trump and COVID, you know, you would look at your phone in the morning and think, is this real or is this The Onion? Like, is this Saturday Night Live or did this actually just happen? And, you know, so much of that was, I mean, there was an awful lot of that in Barberini Rome. And it really felt to me this weird way, like, oh, I know how this goes. I mean, it's really unfortunate to be living it. But yeah, this is, I mean
1: it's such a fine line. Um, yeah. And then, and you know, as you're kind of like pull it, you, you're like teasing out is this, you know, idea of, you know, using the conventions of what might be called a factual discourse or like historic, the conventions of the historically situated factual discourse in order to, you know, serve sort of political ends, ideological ends as, as you're kind of bringing out happens with Trump happens back then when, you know, you have this pornographic pamphlet that's actually supposed to be, a takedown of this Italian that, you know, there, there really wasn't just like a description of the voice, you know, it, yeah. it, it's in all of these, um, these tensions.
0: Yeah. I mean, this treatise on, you know, how supposedly people quoted it for how to do the castro, Castrato procedure, but it was basically because this guy was saying, oh, there's such a problem with Castrati marrying ladies. It's just causing all this trouble which happened also in the 16th century in this papal bull that was leveled against castrati was, you know, starts with, with frequency in these parts as if like in, you know, that part of Spain, every three minutes, a castrata was marrying a lady. Um, So there is this kind of way that these even a very official documents get embedded in stories. And I think the other thing, and this probably does have to do with finishing a book like this in the South in the Trump era is you also realize you know unfortunately sometimes the facts aren't the most important thing in driving the world i mean certainly covid was a really good example of the way that false information did as much work as real whatever is real information
1: yeah no absolutely and especially when both desperately you know scientists as well as you know uh, you know news people just trying to like get out a story were like hurrying to like make sense of what was happening. Like that moment that early on when we're like, well, they're still running tests, but some people heard that someone said, you know, and then it gets passed off and naturalized yeah. in a certain way. Yeah. 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 So it's a little too, a little too, a uh, little too present.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I mean, no, that, that, right, that, 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 yeah, presentism. Right. it was all very present, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, okay. Um, so okay, the other two invent or interventions that I like that inventions. You have, I like that. You like inventions. Okay, the yeah. other two inventions you have in the book, um, concern materiality and embodiment. Yeah, um, can you tell us a bit about what these concepts mean for you um, and how they functioned in early modern uh, Italian thought?
0: Yeah, maybe I'll start with materiality, because that's one that I thought about a lot. And that really goes back to my very, very early, some of my earliest research on the female voice is when and this is, again, probably in some ways a critique against presentism, it's when we think of materiality, we think of something that you can touch, something that you can feel, you know, we're always talking in like a chair or a rock or whatever. And in the early modern period, the line between material and immaterial was quite different. So, um, you know, when people wrote about the dangers of song, there was this idea that if you, especially, I mean, a woman, if she's saying something that it was so dangerous, that I don't know, like the whole church might collapse just because of this sound or, you know, the sounds, there was this, you can imagine these cartoons of a voice going in an ear and doing all this damage to the body. Um, And so materiality could really be things that we think of as being rather immaterial. Um, So I think just that was something that was really important to me is to think about the different ways that material and immaterial are imagined and the ways they work against one another and with one another um and then embodiment i mean that's such a it's also become such a loaded word it's the other funny thing about taking so long to write a book is that these terms that no one was using everyone uses and then suddenly you're having to figure out what they mean um but i think embodiment is really you know the one of the ways i always thought about it particularly in doing early music things is the difference between how we inhabit our bodies and how early modern people inhabit their bodies. So we can have the same sounds. You know, we look at the same music, we play the same music, but it doesn't feel the same. So you think about, you know, what did this song sound like before car alarms? And I thought about this a lot in my Monteverdi book, where you would read these descriptions of Monteverdi and it would say, Oh, this, you know, the, 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 music that was depicting hell was so terrifying. And then you play it for your undergrads and it sounds, you know, like a little bit of a four, three suspension, and maybe it's a little bit annoying, but um it doesn't sound scary at all.
1: Yeah, so it's just it's like, the, it's like, you know, the extent to which like mayonnaise is spicy, you know, yeah. like, it's like the most bland nowadays.
0: Yeah, exactly. Or speed, right? I mean, what feels fast to us, you know, if you're like, like the joy of riding your bike down a hill is an incredible pleasure but then for people that have fly rocket ships that's nothing Um, so I think that's a lot of what I mean by embodiment is the sort of question of living in body in a body Mm -hmm. the sort of historical situatedness of that and then how bodies are made through what they do which gets back to what we were talking about with castrato training or any kind of musician training Um, and I think you know, a part of it, maybe a lot of my thinking about music and embodiment came from doing a lot of undergraduate music teaching to non-music majors and trying to, you know, talk with students about what is it that moves them. And it's not, I mean, certainly I can take as much pleasure as any other musicologist in figuring out like the nitty gritty of really quirky pieces. You know, I'd love some of those just crazy 17th century heady pieces and figuring out why they're weird but that's not really what moves people when they hear them. And it's not what moved people in the 17th century either. You know, there's something that happens in the body.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, do you mind uh, the, this is kind of like an interesting uh, thing and I kind of want to see how these two, there, there are two separate chapters kind of like pull out this aspect of embodiment and how it gets and, and it's, you know, entanglement with materiality. Yeah. Um, that that, that we can, I think it will pick up from what you're saying is there's on the one hand kind of the, what you call liquid ecstasy. I I think it was, Uh, yeah. Like this, like affect of like revelation and Jesuit, Jesuit circles. Um, But also the um, in like more of the political and um, medical sphere, like discussions of the castrati, uh, as lacking. So it, it, in relation to the the notion of human, they're somehow able to do, they're in excess in some sense, yep. Uh, in their ability to affect us, but they're also lacking in a very different sense, right? And they kind of like straddle that line in, in an interesting way.
0: Yeah, they really do. And it also, I mean, it's always that thing of like, it depends on who you ask, right? And sometimes the same writer will write about it in both ways. You'll have these treatises that say, you know, I was moved to I beyond out of my body by listening to these castrati and then they'll say, Oh, well, and you have to make sure you put them behind the choir raft so no one can see these, you know, weird looking creatures. Um, So often there's a kind of dissonance, which goes with lots of kinds of arts and things that are exceptional or fascinating. Um, And, you know, the liquid ecstasy chapter is when I was really trying to get at kind of the vocal ecstatics and to tease out the ways, if you read in the music theory treatises, there's certain and history, there's certain kinds of sounds that people will say, Oh, this sound, you know, isn't appropriate for church. Or they'll say, well, this is a church sound and this is the not church sound, but it's the same music, right? Like if you listen, Monteverdi is, not I just keep going back to that, but you've got a lament of Mary and a lament of Ariana is the same or, um, I was just uh, getting ready for my class this semester and making playlists for the students. And, you know, you listen to Aretha Franklin singing gospel music or singing any other kind of music, and it's the same voice, and a lot of it's the same gestures. So it's not that it's different sounds. It's how we feel. It's where those sounds are and then how threatened people are by the work of the sounds.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and it's the, you know, to kind of get get us back to, uh, your, your, um, your, you're wandering around, Rome, uh, wandering around Rome. Uh, you talk a lot about like, yeah, this, this kind of like the similarity, but also kind of these like political differences of when the same, you know, quote unquote, uh, music is played inside or outside the church, whether it's an outdoor festival or yeah. sacred you know, within a small, uh, court.
0: Yeah, Um, no, yeah. And the political work it does. And of course, you know, in Rome is the sort of, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, not quite myths, but sort of uh, complicated misreadings of things. But you know, this idea that Castrati came because there were no women on the stage. I mean, sure, that's part of it. But in Rome, there really were like intense prescriptions against women in all kinds of public spaces. Um, And yeah, this question of, you know, the politics of a voice like does is a voice used to in Rome, for example, like to use that voice outside in a spectacle to glorify a sacred or a church court does a lot of work and puts that pope or cardinal in power to use that voice in the church too aggressively becomes a threat to a kind of um, like autonomy of soul or something, for lack of a better phrase.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I do just want to note that I, I I, definitely love the image of Kate Bush taking down an entire church with her voice, you know, like, like the fear of that. I want to live in a world where that's the fear. Is that like too much Kate Bush is going to like dismantle the foundation of a Um, Yeah, no, fascinating. Um, I was just about to ask you um, if there's anything you want to bring out for the readers. However, I thought I heard a, a little cicada friend Talking in ah, the background, yes, yes and there we are have so yet many. to get to the yeah we have yet to get to the cat the the, the titular cat piano as well. That's um, right. Can we dive into those a little bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a chapter. I think I called it "Death of a Cicada," but there, um, I got really fascinated with this fable of sound that Galileo tells that ends with this dissection of a cicada, um, and it's usually used to show various things about science. But it's also really a story. It's a sound studies story, right about the guy, the hermit hears these sounds and these things happen, but, uh, and he's, he's never heard anything that's not himself basically. And he hears all these sounds and at every moment he thinks the sound in nature is something else. You know, he thinks something's a door or a glass. Um, But a lot of it came from, I just got sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm just so terrible about rabbit holes, but these writings about cicadas um, that go really all the way back to the ancients. And I live in Virginia where we're not in a particularly aggressive cicada summer, but God, I mean, it is like hearing, you know, the world around you can explode and just listening, listening to the ways that people have described the cicada um, shows some of the challenges of talking about sound and shows the ways that the technological space that you inhabit affects how you explain your world so it gets explained in terms of animals then it gets explained in terms of you know trains and now it's always explained in mechanical terms as some kind sounding like some kind of machine and it also stayed mysterious for so long it was one of these things that you know no one quite understood how it worked um and interestingly a lot of well quite a few anatomists who were trying to understand the human voice were also really interested in cicadas. So the other thing that I did in this book was looking pretty carefully at anatomical treatises. And sometimes that meant looking at, you know, cicadas or pigs noises or how people drew these things and how they imagined them. Um, But yeah, the cicada, I mean, the cicada in Virginia sounds an awful like the cicada in Florence or the cicada in Rome. And it's if you've lived in a cicada place, then you know the sound. It's just, it's August. Well, in Virginia, it's August and it's just everywhere. So loud.
1: Yes. And it's all, and uh, another thing that I'm always, uh, I I also grew up around cicadas um, and it's always fascinating to me. And this may have come up at some point uh, in that discussion, but yeah, my, my, my encounter with cicadas is like, from it's like this weird disconnect where, from my like spatial location, um, you know, aural abilities, my you know, stereo listening, I can locate a location, but it always sounds like I can't tell if there's one or six cicadas at the same time. It's kind of this, like, you know, it all again, always kind of like in a, it, it's there's something bubbling over, and but I mean, I guess you've been more on, you know, like. How the hell do we make this noise? Well, and are they, they are invisible. I mean, you don't
0: you usually don't see them. They're in trees and then they just yeah. die after they do their thing. So, it's very dramatic. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's kind of the way I want to go someday. Yeah. <laughs> um All right, but what about the cat piano? Okay. Let's so, uh Yeah. Let's get the
0: Well, so the cat piano you know, was also one of these like weird accidents where I made up the title before I had written very much of the book and I was really obsessed with the cat piano in fact Um, and then I realized, oh, there's actually very little information about it. Like there's zero chance that there's a whole book in the cat piano. Um, but I was, you know, I was really interested in just the cat piano as this first, I was interested in just the weirdness of it. And, uh, again, it became something that was interesting to me in terms of stories. I mean, every so often, even now people get very exercised about the cat. There was, you know, as far as we can tell, there was really not a real cat piano. It's a fantasy instrument.
1: Can we describe what it is first? I mean, what it's history.
0: Yeah. You put the cats, you, you know, you put them in some cage and then you push a button, which puts the spike on their tail and they squeal and they could squeal in a scale or they could squeal in ways. And it amused a melancholy Prince. If you've ever watched the Muppets, if you Google Muppaphone, the Muppaphone is a good example. It's a good modern rendition of the cat piano where they, you know, hit the Muppet on the head and it sings a note. Um, so that's the idea is that they made this thing out of animal, out of cats by torturing the cats and made music. Um, so there was also a pig organ later. And also I learned quite late in the game about the donkey choir, but I'll just leave that one for now. Um, yeah. They, and, but in the end it was kind of a fantastical instrument, but it's a very good story, right? It amused a mechanical prince. The drawings of it are quite elaborate. So they show up, I mean, in the same drawings show up all the time. Um, And what you notice when you go, so supposedly, you know, the source that's most frequently cited is Kircher, but when you go and look, so Kircher was a kind of uh, polymath, 17th century. He appears a lot in my book, just because he had a lot to say about all the things that I have a lot to say about uh, technology, Uh, exploration, sound. He also had quite a bit about to say about Castrati. He wrote a big book of music history, so he's in there a lot. And there's this one little paragraph about the cat piano that was for a melancholy print. But, you know, prints. But it turns out it's his student who wrote about it and the student is saying it's basically this thing happened. So it it turns out, you know, no one ever really saw the cat piano. Um, And I just got really interested in trying to track it down. And the way what happened at the very end of it was really that um, I was getting copyright permissions for the images and just trying to trace the kind of genealogy of the image just showed brought forth the myth of it. You know, this picture that lots of people use is from a 19th century French Ethnographic book, quoting an 18th century book, quoting a 16th century book. Um, and there was no cat piano, really, ever. Um, so it becomes, to me, it, it's a little microcosm of the book. And I use it in the book because it's also, you could tell this story if you wanted about, oh, you know, here's this thing where living creatures are tortured to make music that amuses beautiful princes. Um, that's a story but it's not really the story. You know, there's a story about um, technology, about the limits of the body. There's a story about the kind of ways that images travel. There's a story about trying to capture sound and images. Um, And there's also a story about the things that kind of fascinate us in history, whether they're true or not. Like, it doesn't really matter at this point if there was a cat piano or not, because it just pops up as a trope.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, no, and, it, and it's interesting how you, um, uh, I, I, I liked, I think that was the one of the sections in the book, and this comes up a couple of times of kind of like the process of othering that is enacted in telling these stories and kind of this like labyrinth esque trying to find, you know, like an actual cat piano. Um, it always seems to have happened elsewhere. It's always on the outside. It's, it's never like, oh yeah, go down you know, in Washington, D.C., you know, go here, there it is. It's always, I heard that those people make a cat piano. Um, Or, you know, like there's like perhaps that kind of like valence that could also be um, uh, heard, I guess, kind of in in its telling.
0: Well, and that's the thing about the castrato is that it's always somewhere else. You know, the English were like, oh, the French, the French said the Italians, the Italians said the Moors. And then, you know, Columbus said it was the bad Indians, like some, there's always somebody else, nobody, you know, everybody is looking for this procedure and everybody likes the sound of the castrato, but they would never do that.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And right. It's like, they're like, Oh, we couldn't do the, you know, the dehumanizing work, the, the lack that we're imposing. Um, But We want to reap all the benefits. Um, since there are other, you know, you know, it's like heathen esque people who will do it. We want to reap the benefits of the liquid ecstasy for say, you know, and like, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that was, but that was a really fun part actually. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is there, uh, are there any, is there anything else you want to pull out here? I mean, we've, we've jumped through a lot of hoops and I've, 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 I've pulled your, your COVID strained voice as far as I feel ethical to do. I mean,
0: well, one thing I'll say is the end of the book, I kind of wrote two different endings um, in part because I couldn't figure out how to end it. I just, you know, I don't, I'm, and I'm terrible at ending. I never know. I often write conference papers and I just haven't done a conclusion. And the person who reads it says I'm having trouble following the conclusion. I have to say, I didn't write it. And uh, I play a lot of jazz and improvised music and I'm terrible at the end. I always, you know, I'm done and the band is still going and I can't figure out why we're still playing. Um, so I think one of the things I tried to do at the end was to just bring together to end with unanswered questions and to end with, to sort of use the inability to end purposefully and to think about, you know, how is it that a piece of scholarship is never the definitive thing, and it's always very much about stories? And I also ended with Vernon Lee, um, who was also fascinated with castrati and fascinated with stories and liked secret gardens. And I, one at one trip when I was in Italy, I climbed over a wall into it. I trespassed in what turned out to have been a garden that she spent a lot of time in. So that was um something that i ended with and i guess another thing i should say is you know for a feminist to write a book with so few women in it was a bit of a epistemological challenge so that i loved ending with vernon lee for that reason and there's also uh image the drawing of the cicada is um is an 18th century female natural historian. And my daughter who was in high school at the time on COVID lockdown found that book for me because the image, I didn't know anything about it, but I was sitting at my desk, just feeling a little bit perturbed by just the incredible, how there was just so few women in this book. And my then 17 year old daughter basically said, we can do something about that.
1: Um, they, they're living up to their uh, a research assistant title. Yeah, no, they were thrown away.
0: Yeah, no, all three kids definitely did a good job of uh, research assistant tasks. I mean, partially because I, you know, ironically, having COVID now, I did do the last round of this um, during COVID when we had three teenagers at home. So, uh, well, actually, four because I had an extra child for much of COVID. But um, so, you know, there wasn't a lot to do. So the occasional task for their mother wasn't the end of the world
1: yeah yeah nice cool um other than you know recovering from uh recovering from covid what's next for you
0: um i mean that's such a good question i we just started school here last oh god tuesday um and uh, let's see, I missed my first class because I had COVID. And I did send my husband and my daughter to teach it. And I ran into a student who said, wait, are you the one who made her husband and daughter teach her class on the first day of school? So that, I guess, is who I am now at UVA. Um, but I so I
1: run hey, something... she, your daughter's a paid research assistant. All right, like, right exactly. That's... And I sent,
0: oh, no, a, I sent a grown up professor in place. They had questions like they yeah. needed to know where something was. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I run this. I am on the third, second and a half year of a big grant that runs something called the Sound Justice Lab. As I said, and it said at the beginning, where we work a lot on the limits of the justice system. Um, and this we live in Virginia, so we're thinking about what we call the canonical and the band. So thinking about the damage that that's doing. Um. We also run a large program for Afghan refugee women and children and think about the stories that are not told locally. So I'm working on that. Um, I've been there when I finished the Castrato book there, I cut out quite a lot of stuff around Columbus and exploration and Jamestown. And I I think that will be a book. I don't know how quickly it will be a book, but I'm really interested in thinking about I'm calling it the idea is around syncopated histories, which is sort of this book is there's some of that in there, but thinking about Columbus to Jamestown to the contemporary South and back and thinking about the kind of echoes of history um, and how we live with them and don't live with them. And in that it's start, I mean, another, a lot of times I get ideas from teaching. So there's this part in Columbus that I love to teach where Columbus um, he sees these Indians and he wants to make friends. So he starts playing music and he is really surprised that they start shooting at him because he feels that he has like invited them to a party. (laughs)
1: And
0: it's so dumb, you know, I mean, obviously the guy was not dumb. That's silly to say, but you read this and you think this just says it all. Like you're such a dummy. Like you played drums and trumpets and you banged on stuff. So (laughs) What what made you think that was going to make friends? Um,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So that's another. I mean, I guess it's another project. That's a lot. That's a lot about um these stories. And you know, it comes also from thinking through um even some of. I mean, I always like to kind of gently correct. So you think about the sixteen nineteen project, and you know, I grew up in Virginia where we learned had. Date history three times so first of all 1619 was not news to anyone who grew up here but second of all there was a whole like there are many many complicated um enslavements before then so really just thinking about um the complicated legacies and i guess you know some of the work that i'm doing now comes from where i live Um, this question of putting together a local history and a global history and a contemporary moment as a kind of um, assemblage of multiple pasts and where, um, you know, wanting to understand that world really.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I I guess, I mean, that is one thing that we we didn't touch on as much, but that is like another one of those threads. So it's interesting to to hear that some stuff got cut around that because there are all these little threads tying in, you know, uh, settler colonialism, uh, you know, the the exploration of the world that's going on at that time and all the, like, messy history of the early modern era that, you know, which which branches out of this book that seems to be relatively... Center, like, as you're kind of saying, it kind of takes Rome as a center. Yeah. But it has all these feelers out. So it's interesting that one of those feelers uh, didn't quite make the uh, the final cut.
0: Yeah, and I so think
1: it's... For, for this text, you know.
0: Yeah, and it's a long... You know, the book is... God knows it's long enough. Um, and it also... Um... You know, part of it, too, is, I mean, I I often felt like this book was a kind of reproductive woman's My Dog Ate It. You know, one thing that happened was, I mean, it's really delightful to go to Rome with many research assistants, but you can't just flit off in the way that, you know, there was a long decade or so where it wasn't that easy to just zip off and check something. But there's a huge amount of source material here um and so some of what i've done in this new project is you know really build on the stuff that's right here in the library at uva and you know i can look at john smith's maps like just walk over from my office and look at them for 20 minutes um and that, you know that was so connected to the um castrato book and just really thinking about i like to play games with numbers and you know if you ask um if you say to a to a classroom of Virginia kids, 1607. If you say to a classroom of music music people, 1607, they'll probably say Orfeo. If you say to a classroom of Virginia kids, they'll say Jamestown. Uh, that's an answer they know, you know, it's like, because it's on all the tests starting in fourth, in fourth grade. So just this, like these, what happens to, you know, I mean, this is really part of a larger movement in musicology that I would say I'm on the outskirts of, you know, there's so many people doing great work. I'm not really a thought leader in this at all, but just this question of what happens when you re like you think time in different ways. You know, what does it mean that Jamestown and Orfeo were the same year? And that's just not a, a thing we think very much about.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I, if it ever becomes a book, I'd like to talk about it. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you, you at least have one reader if you need it. Yeah.
0: And I think it will be, I want to make a different, I don't definitely don't want to write this. I want it to be a different kind of book. In part, the the source situation with early America, there's so much scholarship. There's so much more scholarship on America than on the kind of stuff I usually write about. It's amazing, really. I don't know how you cite it all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, it can be overwhelming. It's like nice that you aren't just looking for two descriptions or yeah. whatever, uh, <laughs> of the cat piano, you're just like, Oh God, I want less. I know. Oh, my, you know, it's all much. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a bit overwhelming. I I'm know. not used to
1: it. Hmm. Well, I don't have anything else for you. Oh, uh,
0: well, thank Do you. you. Have anything else? No, yeah. this was really fun. And thank you for uh, putting up with my, uh, slightly, uh, hoarse voice and also the Xfinity hell. Um, no, but then no, I got outside anything. and everyone could hear the cicadas.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it provided us a nice uh, segue.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, no, no, it was a pleasure talking with you. The book The book was, as I said, a, a joy to read and as someone who knows very little about this topic and era, it was it was very legible and you made like it, I, had a, I had a great time. And speaking with you, of course, was a delight, you know. Yeah,
0: it was great. Thank you so much.